you take a look at your handout, you see that we are heading into the book of Exodus, just one week there in Genesis. We're moving quickly, and that's a challenge for you if you are seeking to do the reading and the chapter titles that uh, sent out as an email. If you want to take this course for credit, you need to be scanning each book of the Bible. That only takes about 10 minutes And then you need to be reading through each book of the Bible, which these introductory books of the Torah are quite long, and so that takes a a bit of a commitment, but not as long as you would think, as long as you don't stop and think about everything that you're reading. You're just supposed to read it through, and not necessarily doing it like devotional reading, where you read slowly and meditate, but instead you're getting the big picture, and you kind of want to just read from beginning to end in one or two sittings, and, and really get your arms around the book as a whole. And then if you are feeling ambitious, you can do the chapter titles, and that's where you write down just three or four or five words on each chapter, what the main idea, what happened in that chapter. So we're moving quickly from Genesis into Exodus. A quick review from our look at the first part of the Torah last week in the book of Genesis, that we divided it in half. Here the hinge is in chapter 12, where you have the Abrahamic covenant, where God makes his promises to Abram about the land, the seed, and the blessing. And that everything before that was really leading up to God's work with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Joseph's story is important there at the end. So we had the four events in the first part of the book, the four people in the second part of the book. And notice that the second part of the book is the major part of the book which is backwards compared to what we usually pay the most attention to. We usually pay attention to the the shortest part of the book, which is really just the introduction to the Pentateuch. And that leads us as Christians to undervalue the stories of the patriarchs and the rest of the Pentateuch. We kind of just go in our Sunday school classes or in our Bible surveys from creation to fall to flood to Christ comes. And that's not the way that God gave us the Bible. He really has a lot of important lessons for us to learn through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the foundation of our faith. This is not the foundation of the faith. This is the introduction to the foundation of the faith. The rest of the Pentateuch is the foundation for our faith, the the keystone. So, I have on your handout a little introductory paragraph where I say the Pentateuch is one book therefore we should read Exodus in its context in Torah that is between Genesis and Leviticus Exodus tells us about Yahweh at the burning bush the plagues on Egypt the Passover the parting of the sea of reeds the ten commandments the golden calf and the construction of the tabernacle. That's some of the big ideas that are here in this 40 chapters of the book of Exodus. Now, when we come to the book of Exodus, we're really coming to the heart of the Pentateuch. That the Pentateuch is a story about the formation of Israel as God's nation and the blessing that God is going to bring to Israel and to all the world from the Abrahamic covenant, but the Abrahamic covenant leads to the covenant of God with Israel at Sinai. And that's what we have in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel are brought out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, and that's where we're going to camp for quite a while. Now, once again, when it comes to the book of Exodus, we tend to just focus on the first part of the book, 
the plagues on Egypt and the Exodus. And the title of this part of the Pentateuch even plays into that. But once again, that's only the first 15 chapters of the book. And there's 25 more chapters after that. So once again, I think we make the mistake of glancing over or skipping past the main part of the book and focusing on something that is really just the introduction to the main part of the second part of the Pentateuch. So, with that in mind, let's take a look at the title and the authorship of the book of Exodus. The title Exodus is the Greek title. It's the title that was in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's not the Hebrew title of the book. Now, titles are not inspired. They're just things that people came up with after the book was written. Moses didn't title these books. The only title that we have in Scripture of this part of Scripture is the Law of Moses, or the Law, or the Torah, or the Book of Moses. And it's, again, singular, not the books, but the Book of Moses. And so its division into five parts is more of a practical matter just because it's so long. There weren't scrolls long enough to contain a book of this size. And then the titles that go along with it are just a matter of human tradition. And Exodus is not a perfect title for this book. Exodus, again, just focuses on the first part of the book and doesn't really say anything about the second part of the book, which is actually the bigger and more important part of the book. So it's somewhat mistitled. Now, Exodus means a blank of a large number of people. Anybody want to guess what goes in the blank? Yeah, migration would be good. That's one of the definitions I saw. The definition that I'm pulling from here said a departure of a large number of people. So a departure, a migration of a large number of people. That's what Exodus means. So if it's just one person leaving, it's not an Exodus. But if you've got lots of people leaving the state of California, it's an Exodus from the state. Now, the Hebrew title is also not inspired. Don't think, well, this is the the real name of the book. It's not the real name of the book. It's just what the Hebrew people use to describe it. And it just takes the first two words of the book and uses that as the name of the book. This is something that they did. We kind of do it with our hymns. You know, if you want to know what the name of the hymn is, you just take the first few words of the hymn, and that's the name of it. Well, that's the way they did it with their books back then. And so the Hebrew title is These Are the Names. Because if you turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, that's how the book starts. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And then it lists the tribes of Israel and how they are 70 and talks about Joseph dying and all of that. So you see, if you take out the title of the book Exodus and you take out the chapter numbers and the verses, It's really just continuing from what left off at the end of what we call Genesis. At the end of Genesis, Joseph dies, they embalm him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And then these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So it's just continuing right on with the story. You see how it's the one book in multiple parts, really just for practical reasons. So because it's so big, we also have to break it down into parts when we're doing the Old Testament survey. There's no way we'd be able to do the whole Torah in one hour of Old Testament survey. That wouldn't do it justice. And so this morning, we're breaking it down. So the dates covered, you've got those, 1876 to 1445, but really it's just 1446 to 1445 because the 1876 to the 1446, all of that is covered just in the first chapter 
when it's talking about how the people of Israel uh, multiplied and how a new pharaoh came along who enslaved the people. And so it covers that 400 years of history pretty quick in the first chapter there. So the whole book after that is just these two years of Moses going to free the people and the people then going to Mount Sinai. And that's what you see here on the outline that I've again used from Charles Swindoll's study on the Old Testament survey. So you've got the 430 years here, really just in the first couple chapters. I mean, you've got some information on Moses' early life there also that's part of that. So when he's growing up, his 40 years, and then his 40 years in the wilderness. But then when he comes back and really gets the story going with him meeting with Pharaoh and then the Exodus, that all is done in just a matter of months and then a one year there at Mount Sinai. So that gives you some idea of the, the time that is taking place here. It was written by Moses, at least the majority of it written by Moses. There might be a few parts that were compiled and added by a later editor, maybe Joshua. But by and large, it's by Moses, written sometime after the Exodus and before Moses died. So we don't know exactly when, but sometime between 1445, the early date for the Exodus, and 1405, when Moses died, an old man full of years at 120. So he had his, his life broken up into three 40-year periods in that last 40 years. So let's take a look then at the structure of the book. And I've given you several different outlines on your handout. And here's a different one. Here he's got one, two, three, four, five parts. I like to make it simple, so I don't want to break it down into five parts. You're not going to be able to remember five parts. So I'd say two or three is the way to go when you're thinking about the outline of the book of Exodus. And again, the word Exodus really just goes with the first part with Israel in Egypt. You see that on your outline, chapters 1 through 13. So in the left-hand column, I've given you the traditional geographic outline where you can see they're in Egypt, then they're in the wilderness, and then they get to Mount Sinai. And the goal is to get them to Mount Sinai, and that's where they enter into the covenant, they get the law, they build the tabernacle. That's why they've come out of Egypt, so that they could meet with God and become God's people. So if you wanted to give a, a more accurate title to the book, it could be Exodus and Entrance, that they're exiting from Egypt and they're entering into their covenant relationship with God. Now, the thematic outline, which is on the right side there, is not exactly parallel. You notice that the Exodus there is 1 through 18, and that Exodus there in the first part of the outline would include Israel traveling to Mount Sinai. And then it picks up with the law, given in chapters 19 through 24, and the Ten Commandments are in chapter 20, and there's more commandments after that. And then chapters 25 through 40 deal with the tabernacle, all the elements, all the artifacts, and the tabernacle tent itself, the plan for it, the building of it, the consecration of it, all of that is the focal point of chapters 25 through 40. And that's the part we usually skip over the fastest, but it's actually the point that God is taking up residence among a people and I like what our author said in the video, and I'm not showing you the video, but one of the best quotes in the video was that God has an address with Israel, that the tabernacle is God's address. There's one place in the world where you can go, and that's where God lives. That's the tabernacle. So that's a very key, important part of the book. 
and that's why it's separated there on the outline. But I think the easiest way to remember the book of Exodus is a two-part outline. That really, you've got the Exodus and the entrance, and that's what I put down below. You could also use the word redemption and revelation. God is revealing himself through the covenant. If you had a word for see that could go with the first part, then you could have covenant as the second part. But anyway, you don't always have to alliterate your outlines, do you? So the two-part outline is easiest to remember. The first 15 chapters are the redemption from Egypt. The last 25 chapters are the entrance into the covenant. Any questions about the outline or the dates or the title? Well, good. Now, let's go on to the themes and the purpose for this part of the Torah. Of course, the number one theme is redemption and deliverance. That's the first part of the book. And the key text here is in chapter 6, verses 2 through 8. If you want to turn in the book of Exodus to chapter 6, you're familiar with the call of Moses at the burning bush and and all of that. But here in chapter 6, you get a, a very succinct statement about what's going to happen in the rest of the book as far as this first part of the book. And I'd like to highlight it for you by reading it here. It says this, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. So there we've got the reference back to the first part of the Pentateuch with God's, his relationship, his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But by my name, the Lord, that is Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So, those are very key foundational verses that are thematic. They're telling you the main theme here in the book of Exodus, as we call it, that God is bringing them out of slavery and he's going to bring them into the land. He's going to be their God and he reveals his special covenant name to the people of Israel, Yahweh, which we'll talk more about as time permits this morning. So in the redemption and deliverance theme, you see that This involves judgment against Egypt. That's what we read there, God's great acts of judgment against the Egyptians. But it also involves deliverance for Israel, and these go together. You can't have the deliverance of the righteous without the judgment of the wicked. The wicked are those who are oppressing the righteous. And so therefore, in order to save the righteous, you have to destroy the power of the wicked who are using their power to oppress. It's a key concept then throughout the rest of the Bible. 
This is called the day of the Lord as we get to the later prophets where God once again does this act of judgment upon wicked nations in order to save his covenant people. And this is then, of course, true as we get to the New Testament, the book of Revelation. When the book of Revelation deals with the coming of Christ, the gathering together of the elect into God's eternal kingdom, well, what's the book of Revelation focus on? The mighty acts of judgment of God on the nations who have been oppressing the people of God. They've been murdering the saints. They've been martyring God's people. They've been suppressing the truth by opposing those who love the truth. And so God comes in judgment to destroy And so this redemption and deliverance, don't just think of it as the positive side of, yay, the Israelites are free, but it's also got the negative side, and that's really what the story focuses on in the ten plagues, that you've got the blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the livestock, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, the death. This deliverance is a violent deliverance. It's a bloody deliverance. It's a powerful act of judgment upon the Egyptians for their sins against God's people. Now, the second major theme then that we want to talk about is that of covenant. We focused on covenant last week when we started to look into the book of Genesis. We saw that the Noahic covenant was the foundation for God's plan to bless sinful mankind. That even though mankind deserves death and destruction because of sin, we see that evidenced in the flood, yet God's intention is not to destroy mankind and the world that he has created, but to bless mankind and all of the world that he has created. And that his plan to do this then becomes evident then through the covenant that God makes with Abram, who becomes Abraham. So the Abrahamic covenant that was first hinted at in Genesis chapter 12, first developed in Genesis 12, was later ratified in Genesis chapters 15, 17, and then it was given to Isaac and Jacob. And so that idea of the Abrahamic covenant was the big theme that is developed in the first part of the Torah. So it's not surprising to us that it's still an important theme here in the second part of the law of Moses. And so There's going to be references to God's covenant to Abraham, that God remembers the promises he made to Abraham. And I put down the scripture references there for you. We already read chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, where he references his promises to Abraham. And then the Abrahamic covenant is going to be further developed in what is known as the Sinaitic covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, which is also called the Mosaic Covenant. You could write Mosaic right next to Sinaitic. And I actually prefer the term Mosaic because the Noahic Covenant is named after Noah, the Abrahamic Covenant is named after Abraham, and then the Sinaitic Covenant should be named after Moses since he's the mediator of the covenant. But it's not a covenant with Moses, it's a covenant with Israel, and Moses is the mediator of that covenant. So the covenant is key. The covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, this is the reason why God redeemed them. It's the reason why God judged Egypt. It's the reason why God brought them out so that he could enter into this covenant with them at Mount Sinai. So turn with me to chapter 19 of Exodus. Here's a a key verse on the covenant, the Mosaic covenant which is viewed, I think properly, as an administrative covenant for the Abrahamic covenant. 
the Abrahamic covenant is going to be administered by the Mosaic covenant. That what God had promised to Israel, land, seed, and blessing through the Abrahamic covenant, now they're going to be able to experience the blessings of that if they are faithful to the covenant that God makes with them at Sinai. So think of this vital connection between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. We call it an administrative covenant. And it becomes what we know as the Old Covenant, which is then later replaced by, of course, the New Covenant. So the, the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinaitic Covenant, is the Old Covenant. But it's not called the Old Covenant here because it's new here, right? <laughs> uh, this is the newest covenant at the time that it was given. But now we look back and say, well, that was the Old because now it's been replaced. All right? So let me read for you, starting there in Exodus chapter 19, the people of Israel come out of the land of Egypt, as it says in verse 1, and talks a little bit about their travels, the route that they took. And then we get to verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying... These are important words. This is something you might want to underline or highlight or put a star next to in your Bibles to, to let you know this is a key text, an important part of the Torah. God said, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob... And tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So, God's plan for the people of Israel is that they are going to be able to fulfill their role of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation if they obey God's covenant and God's commands, God's voice spoken through Moses. And so that's what Moses does. He tells the people God's words, they say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do in verse 8. Their naivety about their ability to obey God is formidable. And we find out then through the course of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, that they do not obey all that God tells them to do. And therefore, they are not doing a good job of being God's holy people, this kingdom of priests. Uh, kingdom of priests, what does a priest do? Priesthood is a very important concept in the, in the Torah. And it's a concept that we just skip right over. And you go and talk to most Christians today, and they're like, well, Jesus is our priest, I know that. But what does a priest do? Well, I don't know. He does priest stuff. And so understanding priesthood is key to understanding the Old Covenant. It's key to understanding God's purposes for the nation of Israel. It's key to understanding how the nation of Israel is supposed to be a blessing to the nations because a priest, according to the Bibles, you can read about this not only in the Torah, but also the New Testament does a good job of summarizing this by saying that a priest is someone who offers gifts and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. Well, Israel is a people, and yet they're supposed to be offering gifts and sacrifices to God on behalf of who? If they're going to be a holy people, if they're going to be a kingdom of priests, that's the whole kingdom, the whole people, well, then they're supposed to be doing that for the nations, that I think God's plan was is that Israel would obey God's voice and then they would be the ones who would be able to bring the sacrifices and offerings of the nations 
to Yahweh, the creator God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, they fail to obey God's covenant, and so they do a lousy job of being a kingdom of priests. But, as we jump ahead a little bit in the timeline here, Jesus Christ will come, and he will obey God's voice, and he will be the Israelite, the seed of Abraham, that is a priest to be able to bring the sacrifices and offerings of all the nations to God. And so Jesus is able to do what the people of Israel were not able to do. But God gives them the job here and shows them throughout the rest of the story how they fail to do it, which leads us to the need for the coming of the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is going to fulfill all that God had planned for the nation of Israel. Now, of course, they don't know all that or see all that here, but looking back, we can see that So, Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6, God's summary of what is the purpose of this new covenant at the time that God was making with the people of Israel. He'd already made the Abrahamic covenant, but now he's fulfilled the first part of the Abrahamic covenant by making a mighty nation out of Abraham's descendants, and now he's ready to move into the second part of the plan, which is the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is very, very important. And we should read it, we should understand it, we should learn from it, we should not skip over it. Reading the Mosaic Covenant is an important part of developing our knowledge of God, how God works, how we can please him, what his holiness is, how we are supposed to be holy, what God's moral standards are, and so that we're not conformed to the world that we live in with their moral standards and their ideas of justice and their ideas of holiness, which is, they have no idea what holiness is, But instead, we go to the Mosaic Covenant and learn these concepts. And so even though we're not under the Old Covenant, it is foundational to be able to understand the New Covenant. And a lot of New Covenant Christians are messed up in their worldview and their thinking and their ideas about God because they've never read, they've never been taught the Old Covenant. Now, Andy Stanley is one of the guys who I'm critical of. I think he's got a lot of bad ideas and is leading the church in a bad direction. And one of the things that Andy Stanley says is that we need to unhitch Jesus and the New Testament from the Old Testament. The Old Testament has all this stuff that, you know, was for Israel and ancient times and it's not relevant to today. And and we just kind of need to leave that in the past. And so when I hear somebody like Andy Stanley say we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament, I'm thinking just the opposite. Well, whatever he says, do the opposite. Rehitch our faith to the Old Testament. It's come too far unhitched already. We don't need to unhitch it more. We need to rehitch our faith to the book of Moses. And so that's what I'm hoping is going to be done through this survey and through your reading of the text, that you're going to develop a knowledge of God from the Torah that is going to strengthen you for your whole life. And this is what it's done for me, that my whole life I've known God And I've known the difference between those who are teaching truth about God and those who are teaching error about God because of my reading of the Torah. It's not just from, you know, reading the Gospels. Understanding God from the Torah is a foundation for our faith. I can't overemphasize the importance of you reading it and understanding what you're reading. And I'm trying to help you understand what you're reading through this survey course. So this is a very important course in our adult Sunday school. Maybe I should have done it as a series from the pulpit so that everybody got it, but here we are. So, 
the covenant and the law at Mount Sinai is really the whole big deal from chapters 19 through 40, and it's not going to stop there. It's going to continue on in Leviticus. Leviticus is all about the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the worship of God in the Old Covenant. And Leviticus is the hardest part of the Bible to read, but it starts here. And already when you start to get into Exodus chapters 35 and 36, and it's talking about the altar and the showbread and how they built the curtains and all of that, it's like, eh, I don't need to read that. That's boring stuff. So be careful that you don't despise the Word of God. Just because you don't see right away how important it is, don't just skip it. Read it, try to listen, try to learn what God has for you. In Leviticus and in the last part of Exodus, there are some keys here that you need to absorb for yourself. I can't just tell you it. You have to interact with the text yourself. So the covenant and the law at Sinai. Now, one of the things that is important here when we're talking about the covenants is the idea of the Sabbath, okay? This is repeatedly emphasized throughout the book of Exodus. You've got it in the Ten Commandments, but it's not just in the Ten Commandments. It's also in chapter 16. I gave you the references there for the Sabbath on your handout. And notice chapter 16 is before the Ten Commandments are given in chapter 20. So even before he gives them the Ten Commandments, he's already talking about the importance of keeping the Sabbath there in chapter 16. And then chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, is the Ten Commandments uh, portion that deals with the Sabbath. And then he comes back to it again in chapter 23, a few verses there highlighting its importance. And then he reemphasizes it again in chapter 35. But I've got underlined on your outline chapter 31, because I want you to take a look at what God says about the Sabbath in Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17. One of the things that is important to note about the covenants is that God will have a sign or a ritual that goes along with the covenant. What was the sign that God gave with the Noahic covenant? God made the covenant with Noah. I'm not going to flood the world again. The sign of the covenant was the rainbow, right? What was the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham? For those of you that have read Genesis as part of the Old Testament survey, what sign went along with the covenant to Abraham? It's the sign of circumcision okay so it was something that they did that reminded them of that covenant what's the sign that we have on our hands of our marriage the wedding ring so whenever we look at our hand we're like oh yeah i'm married i made some promises a covenant that i made with my wife so we also do this we also have a sign of important covenants relationships that we enter into well, the sign of the covenant with Moses is what? Well, you'll see it here as we read it. Chapter 31, verses 12 through 17. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, notice what he says, Above all, ooh, that's an important phrase right there, right? Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. Now, he's been giving them all kinds of commands about marriage and about sex, about what's holy and what's unholy, about slaves and how to get freed from slavery and, and all kinds of stuff he's been talking about, including how to build the tabernacle and make the right kind of incense. But he says, you know, I've been giving you all kinds of instruction about moral and religious matters and civil matters, but above all, there's one thing that you're going to remember from what I'm telling you, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Now, Sabbath is not just the weekly Sabbath, but it's also the annual Sabbath and the year of Jubilee and other Sabbath laws that were in the Mosaic Covenant. He says, you shall keep my Sabbaths, plural. 
For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So, the Sabbath law is the sign of the Mosaic covenant, and that if someone does not observe the Sabbath, it's like not circumcising your children. It's like you're not a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham if you don't keep the sign of the covenant. And so in the same way, you don't observe the Sabbath and you're not a part of this covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. And so that's one reason why we as New Testament Christians don't observe the Sabbath is because this was a sign particularly for Israel in their relationship to God that God entered into at Mount Sinai. Now, there's a lot more to discuss on Sabbath and issues related to that, but I wanted you to see this in particular, that the Sabbath is the mark, it is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, and therefore Israel's failure to keep the Sabbath, as we see not only in the Torah but also in their history, is the sign of their unfaithfulness to the covenant and is a big part of why they are ultimately judged and destroyed and experience the curse of God rather than the blessing of God that they could have had if they had observed the Sabbath and kept God's commandment, kept his covenant. All right, well, I'd like to do a whole lesson on Sabbath, but we can't, so we've got to keep moving. The Ten Commandments are the core of the law. I've got that there on your handout. They are also known as the Decalogue. Decalogue just means ten words. Deca, ten, logos, words, the ten words. And the Decalogue, the ten words, it is the very core of God's law that he gave to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai in what we call the Mosaic Covenant. Now, this promise of blessing, in contrast with the curse, remember, it's, it's mediated through the covenants. The blessing of God comes through the covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and even the Levitical Covenant, which we'll take a look at probably next week. So let's continue on here. We're running out of time. I'm trying to do too much in one lesson. The wilderness theme begins in Exodus. You see that up here? Israel is in the wilderness, en route here, the journey with the cloud and the fire and going through the Red Sea. This is the beginning of their time in the wilderness. And of course, Mount Sinai is in the wilderness. And so their time in the wilderness is going to start as they come out from Egypt and it's going to continue all the way through Leviticus and Numbers and even into Deuteronomy. And then finally in Joshua, they enter into the land, the land of rest, the land of promise. But this time of wilderness wandering is an important formation in their history. So that theme starts now. We'll talk more about that in coming weeks, especially when we get to Numbers. Now, one of the other key themes here that I wanted to highlight is the name of God. We saw that in Exodus chapter 6, that God said, I did not reveal myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob according to my name, Yahweh, but I revealed myself as God Almighty. And so the name of God, that special covenant name that he emphasized several times there in that key verse in chapter 6, verses 2 through 8, 
Uh, what does it mean? What does God's name mean? Why does he use this name? Well, it means I am, or some people think perhaps it means I cause to be. But I like the older idea that it means I am. And so when God introduces the name, and Moses asks, who shall I say has sent me? And he says, tell them that I am who I am has sent you. There we have the indication in the text that helps us know that is what the name is pointing towards. It's the self-existence of God, the eternal self-existence of God. That in the days of Abraham, I am. In the days of Moses, I still am. In our day today, I still am. He always is. He exists in the eternal present, and he doesn't pass away like people do. And he's not replaced by other gods who come later, like the pagan gods, but he is the eternal self-existing creator of all things. And that's why he uses this name of Yahweh to identify himself as the God who is. And also, tied up with this, is the idea that he is the God who is faithful, that he is the God who keeps his promises. The promise he made to Abraham, he's still here to keep that promise today. And nothing has changed about God, about his nature. He hasn't gotten old. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't died. He is. And that's why he keeps his promises. And that's why he's the God that you can trust in to be faithful. So there's a lot contained in the name of God here. And then the whole book reveals to us a lot about the character of God. God is warrior. God is provider. God is judge. God is lawgiver. All these ideas about God, it's really, you get so much about God from the book of Exodus. If you just read it several times, you're going to have that key understanding of who God is. And there's no passage that does this better for us in the Bible than Exodus chapter 34. Turn with me to Exodus 34. Exodus 34 is a passage that made a profound impact upon me when I was reading the book of Exodus as a young man. And therefore, I chose it as one of the passages that I preached when I was in seminary in my preaching class. Exodus 34 was one that I wanted to study and build a sermon on as it was a a key part of my education there in seminary. And I have preached that message here. It's been some time, but uh, I preached this May of 2008. I came here as pastor in 2008. And so one of my earliest messages was Exodus chapter 34. And in Exodus 34, what you have is called God's autobiography, where God describes himself in about 45 words. Everything you need to know about God in, I've got written down here, 46, 46 words. And so here you come down and I want you to notice this is after the golden calf. The people of Israel have broken God's covenant. They've disobeyed his most important commands in the Ten Commandments. And the Lord is ready to destroy and judge them, but he still wants to bless them and forgive them. And so, through Moses' intercession, the people of Israel are not destroyed, and God is merciful to them. And so, God reveals his name to Moses here in Exodus 34. And Really, you've got to read the whole context to really appreciate what's going on here. We're just going to jump into verse 6 for time's sake. Exodus 34, 6, everybody's got their Bible in front of them. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Notice that the repetition of the divine name of God, an important theme in the book, Yahweh. When you've got the small caps like that, that's the name Yahweh being translated as Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So there's God's statement. You want to know who I am? You want to know how I'm going to relate to you? You want to know what my personality, what my character is like? Well, the first thing you need to know about God is he's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's the first thing. That's all just kind of like one big idea being explained in a lot of different ways. But there's a second thing you need to know about God. And the second thing often gets overlooked. And Christians with their inclusive gospel, they're just love, 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 acceptance, 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 forgiveness, forgiveness. Well, that's all good. But don't forget the second part that God will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So I was reading the book of Exodus this week with my youngest, Viola. And I was like, Viola, what do you think about God bringing all these plagues and judgments upon the people of Egypt? I mean, what about the kids? You know, the kids hadn't enslaved the Israelites. They were just born into this. But there they got their livestock being killed. They've got, you know, the river being turned to blood. They've got the flies and the gnats to deal with. The firstborn are dying, even if they're just three, four years old. What about this God who brings that kind of judgment and death upon little kids? And God says, you need to know about me. I visit the iniquity of fathers on children to the third and fourth generation. That I'm not going to clear the guilty. I'm going to be just. I'm going to be punishment upon the guilt and the wickedness of mankind. So you have to have these in tension. You have to have these in balance. And the church does a pretty lousy job in general of preaching both aspects of what God reveals about himself here. You don't want to forget the mercy and the love, obviously, but you have to remember that God is the God who did these terrible judgments and who is ready to put people to death for breaking the Sabbath. Okay, that's the God we're talking about here. Don't lose that. Got to know who God is. This is God's revelation of himself. Not who you want him to be, not who our culture thinks he is, but who he actually is. Now, the presence of God, of course, a key theme there with the tabernacle. This is what really takes up the last part of the book, the tabernacle, chapters 25 through 40. There's a little break in there with the golden calf and what we're reading about here in chapter 34. But really everything else surrounding that is all about the construction of the tabernacle. And then it ends in chapter 40. Turn to the last part of Exodus, chapter 40. With God's glory entering the tent of meeting. So in chapter 40, they've done all the construction and then Moses is told by the Lord, Yahweh, this is the day that you're going to put it all together. This is the day that you're going to make the sacrifices and anoint the tabernacle and consecrate the priest. And this is the day where I'm going to come and live in the midst of Israel. I'm going to have an address with you. That's there in the presence of God. God has an address. The blank there is God's address among the Hebrew people. God with us. And so scripture slows down and focuses the attention here in the book of Exodus on God coming to live in a tent with the people of Israel. And so if God thinks this is important and he slows down and he gives the details, it's important. We don't just skip over it. This is important to our theology of Emmanuel. God is with us. And God is dwelling on the earth, even though people are sinful. 
How can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? That is a question that needs to be asked. That's a question that needs to be answered biblically. It's not just inclusive love. No, there's got to be atonement. There's got to be sacrifice. There's got to be sanctification. There's got to be holiness. Or God cannot dwell with the people who are unholy, who are sinful, who are corrupt. That is important. A lot of churches full of corruption, full of sin, full of unholy people. God is not there. They might have the best worship music in the world, but God is not there. He only dwells with the holy people. It's an important lesson to take away from the law. So the purpose of the book. Yahweh, the God of creation, the God of the patriarchs, he redeems Israel from bondage in Egypt, and he enters into a covenant with the nation of Israel at Sinai. And then you could throw in something in there about the tabernacle, that he dwells with them in the tabernacle, I think is an important part to throw in for the purpose statement as well. But this is the purpose statement that my professor in in seminary gave us for the book, and I would like to add something in there about the tabernacle. So, just a couple minutes, the interpretive issues, Yahweh's name, was it known to the patriarchs? The question there is, well, if you go back and read the accounts of God's dealing with the patriarchs, the name Yahweh is used in the book of Genesis to talk about God. So did the patriarchs know the name Yahweh or did they not know the name Yahweh? And there's two possibilities. One is that the book of Genesis is not recording a word-for-word account. And so when they say Yahweh in the book of Genesis, that's just importing back from the time of Moses, the word that the people of Moses' generation knew for God's name, but that that's not exactly the word that Abraham used. The other option is that when God says that they did not know me by my name Yahweh, he's saying they didn't know what the name Yahweh fully meant, what it connoted about God's covenant faithfulness and his loyalty to his people that is now being revealed in the book of Exodus. So it's either that The recording of the name Yahweh in Genesis is not historical, and it's just reading back in a later name, or that the name Yahweh, that what God says is he's revealing in a better way what that name means in the days of Moses. Earlier late date for Exodus, I take the early date, talking 1446, 1445, according to Judges chapter 11, verse 26. That would make perhaps Thutmose being the pharaoh of the Exodus, but we're not exactly sure. So I'm not going to talk any more about that for time's sake. Were the plagues natural events or supernatural, or a mixture of the two? Was it like a miraculous intensification of natural phenomena, or was this completely supernatural? When the sea turned to blood, was it actual blood, or was it red algae that looked like blood? That's the types of questions that are involved with number three on the interpretive issues. If you want to know my position, you can ask me. Number four, hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart, I've done a whole study on the hardening of heart, and Exodus 3 through 14 is the most important passage in the Bible for this key theological concept of the hardening of the heart. The question is, does God harden Pharaoh's heart first, or does Pharaoh harden his own heart first, and then God just confirms the hardening that Pharaoh's already started in his heart? So just trying to understand God's responsibility and man's responsibility for a hard heart, what does that phrase mean when God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and it says repeatedly that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Again, we can do a whole study on that, but not right now. And then the discussion questions you can take home and talk about with your family. 
So somehow, we made it through another awesome part of God's Word. So much material to cover here in just uh, 50 minutes. So greet one another and continue reading the Torah.